1: to the silver screen. Welcome back listeners to the fourth installment in our Christopher Nolan movie review series. Today we are reviewing Insomnia. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. And I just gotta say up front, I am a little bit under the weather. I've been getting over it. Don't worry. I have not been infected with the coronavirus, thankfully. <laughs> it is a run of the mill cold and it is spring here in this hemisphere. And uh, did not treat me well, so I'm getting over it. I'm um, hopefully I sound okay. Hopefully my voice just sounds like the usual golden honey it always does to your ears. <laughs> now, have you seen Insomnia before, Alan? This, this version.
0: Oh yes. Okay, so this version I have seen. I've only seen it once. Um, it was definitely during my college years. I remember that much because this was. At the time, one of the few Christopher Nolan movies that I had yet to see that weren't already coming out. Like, I think at the time it would have been Interstellar. So yes, I've seen this one time uh, and I don't remember too much of it coming into this review. Um, But I remember thinking it was okay for a Christopher Nolan movie at least.
1: That is my thoughts exactly because I had seen Insomnia a couple years ago when I was in college as well. And I remember I watched it with my girlfriend, now my fiance. And I remember thinking, I'm curious to watch this movie. It's Christopher Nolan. I, I like his work. And the shot of Al Pacino in the mist, I would say is yeah. iconic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That shot of him in the mist is kind of what people, I think, think of when they think of insomnia. It's kind of like the poster of the movie, too.
1: It really is. So, I watched it. I, I didn't know a thing about the plot and I've, I definitely didn't know this was a remake of a Norwegian film that had came out about five years earlier. And um, I don't think that film got really any recognition. And I still think people don't know very much about it, right. unfortunately. Right. Um, but uh, my thoughts exactly. I've, when I finished the movie, I thought, well, that was Okay. So I really wasn't too uh, overwhelmed by the film. But you know, now that we both have our SSG goggles on, maybe we'll think something completely different.
0: Right. Yeah, I knew going into this that this was a remake of something. I just didn't know what exactly until we started. And so I started researching for this review. You're right. It's a 1987 Norwegian film of the same name that came out in 1987. I haven't seen it. Uh, I hear that you have seen it, though, Corbin.
1: I did. I watched it the night before I watch the film we're reviewing today. I really wanted to know where the story came from, where they, ba- where they got the source material from. And I do highly recommend that film, listeners. I highly recommend the original region film, the cinematography and the use of colors. And also it's like way up at the very tip of the world in Norway. And um, I really do love murder mysteries from that part of the world, Um, particularly like most people have heard of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which takes place in Sweden, which is literally right next door to Norway. It gives you a very similar feeling. The writing is incredible. Stellan Skarsgård, who most people probably would know from Thor. He is the the scientist in that film.
0: Yeah, he's a lot more popular now than he was back in 97.
1: Oh, yeah. And he's been in a lot of movies, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo included, the American Mm -hmm. version. And his sons are very famous actors. His son is uh, Pennywise, which many people have seen. Um, So, an all-around gripping film, I was gripped. So, I ended up giving it on my first watching a 9 out of 10. It comes with an extremely high recommend for the Norwegian version.
0: Which is very high praise, which means I need to watch it because- Uh, when you mentioned, when I found out that it was, you know, a remake, uh, I was looking to see where I could find it. It looks like it's on the Criterion channel, um, if you have a subscription to the Criterion channel. So, that might push me to get a subscription to it, because I've been looking at getting one for a while, but haven't done it yet.
1: Yeah, I went ahead and did the, it's a two-week free trial, which is pretty good for the Criterion channel. I went ahead and did that, so I was able to watch it for free. And the Criterion channel just has every every movie lover's dream oh, on yeah. there. So I do highly recommend you check it out that way. Now, what I'm pretty surprised about is Insomnia came out. Uh, it hadn't even been a... Uh, no, it had been just a little bit over a year, actually, since Memento. Because Memento came out March 2001. Insomnia came out May 2002, which means Nolan had to just like turn around to make this movie.
0: Right, so I'm guessing that Memento came out in around, I think he finished Memento around probably beginning of 2001, but it was definitely finishing up in about the end of 2000. So yeah, he would have had to you know turn around pretty quick to start working on Insomnia. At least this time around though, it wasn't an original picture, it was it actually had some basis of a movie that came out a few years earlier. But you're right, it is a pretty quick turnaround, especially from what we're used to now with Chris for No One, where it's really about every two, sometimes three years he'll release a movie. So yeah, it is a pretty quick turnaround from his previous work, Memento.
1: And I mean, he brings uh, in his composer, David Julian, which he had worked with on his previous two films. And also Wally Feister is back with doing cinematography a completely ri- new writer, uh, just to the screen as well. Hillary Seitz. Mm-hmm. she had never done a like a full fledged theatrical film before, and the only other movie it seems she's done since is *Eagle Eye* with Shia LaBeouf.
0: Oh wow, that's that's a movie I haven't heard of in a long time. <laughs>
1: I actually just rewatched it. My fiance had never seen it. And really? And I kind of was like, let's watch Eagle Eye. I just pulled it from my collection. So I, I recommend you return to it.
0: Now, one thing I did notice that was kind of interesting is the producer roles. Um, yes. Let me pull it up real quick. Executive producer George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh, who, even at the time, the name George Clooney was pretty big. Steven Soderbergh has gotten bigger, I would I would say, over the years. But interesting, ch- uh, interesting producers, I would I would say, for this movie.
1: Yeah, when I was watching the opening credits for the film, it said exactly what you said. I thought George Clooney, mm-hmm. what? And Steven Soderbergh saw Memento and is like, this guy, this Nolan, is the next big thing. Yeah, um, because Soderbergh is an independent director as well, who would go on to become very, very critically acclaimed. He was nominated for best director twice in the same year. Right. So he was up for best directing twice at the Oscars, like at the same time, which I've never heard of that before.
0: Right. Yeah. He, he's definitely one that's become a lot more critically acclaimed.
1: I just don't understand exactly what Clooney is doing. And I just, that's the, that's the, if. the, missing piece to this murder mystery for me <laughs> is there's this kind of nobody really knows about this 97 Norwegian film. Yeah. And George Clooney and Soderbergh, they're like, let's remake this. It's been a couple of years. Let's remake it for an American audience, bring in Academy Award winning talent. Right. And let's give it to this up-and-coming Oscar-nominated director for his third film. It's just
0: weird. It is really weird. And like nowadays, I mean, seeing American renditions of foreign material is nothing new. That happens quite often. Um, but this is something that I don't know how popular it was because at least with what's happening nowadays, it's, you know, of popular mediums or of popular uh, franchises So it makes sense why they would make an American version of it. But this is, yeah, this is weird. A Norwegian film that, I mean, I haven't heard of until now. And I would assume not very many people have heard of until when they remade it uh, for the American version. So, I don't know. It is very strange, all things considered.
1: And why in the world did they release this? May twenty fourth, like that's like the blockbuster summer season is underway. This film really has no business being in the roster at this point.
0: Yeah, our rated R murder mystery. Yeah, <laughs> uh, being released right at the beginning of of the summer. It's a very yeah, it's it's strange the release date uh, and what I guess what they're trying to go for with this movie.
1: And you you brought up a good point. This is Nolan's final R rated film so far. And the story is much more straightforward. Yeah, is linear storytelling, unlike his previous two films.
0: Right, right. Uh, the staple that we noted last time in Memento is not really present here, um, where it kind of jumps in and out of time. Um, yeah, that will happen later in later works. This is mm-hmm. a very much a departure from that, uh, from that idea, or that I guess that filmmaking style that he has.
1: I couldn't help but notice this is his lowest um, IMDb rated film, a 7.2. That's fine. That's really nothing to write home about. But considering his last film, Memento has an (laughs) 8.4. That's a huge drop.
0: Yeah, especially for a director who is as renowned as no one. A 7.2 on IMDb is really low, all things considered. Now, I would argue that the rest of the scores paint this movie in a much better light Because IMDb definitely has the lowest of all the other scoring uh, websites that we look at here on the podcast. So while IMDb has it at 7.2, the Metascore is a 78, which is a pretty good score, critically. Uh, CinemaScore is a B, which is still pretty good, although that one is kind of low still. Um, That's low, yeah. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes at a 92% critic rating, which is very good, and a 77% audience rating, which is pretty, still pretty good, and then a Letterboxd score of 3.5. So it kind of looks like critics loved it, and audiences were either on the grounds of it's good or it's okay. Uh, they seem to have – there doesn't really seem to be a very, I guess, concrete uh, audience score here. Outside of, I guess, okay or pretty good from the audience, I would say. It is
1: saying something when Memento and Insomnia have have identical critic scores on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. And uh, Insomnia just took two points lower than Memento, which was at an 80. Right. But the audience score for Memento was uh, 94, and this dropped to 77.
0: Right, which is a pretty big drop- It's significant. It's
1: still in the recommend range from audiences, right? but nevertheless, you can tell that audiences really thought this one was fine. Right, right. And it it had a fairly weak opening weekend.
0: Yeah, it came out at number three. Now, again, to be fair, this is also right in the middle of the um, summer blockbuster season. So... Uh, Star Wars Episode 2 had come out just two weeks prior to this. Uh, <laughs> oh, the, Sam Raimi, the Sam Raimi Juggernaut Spider-Man franchise mm-hmm. kicked off and was on there for four weeks. And that came in at, when it when Insomnia came out. It was number two. Uh, wow. Number four was Spirit, uh, Stallion of the Cimarron, I think is what the title is, which is an opening yes. in its first week. And then number five is this movie called Enough, also opening in its first week. Week number two, it dropped down to, I think it was number six, <laughs> so, uh, it re- so that week, a movie called The Sum of All Fears came out. Spider-Man 2, mm-hmm. or Star Wars Episode 2 was in its third week. Spider-Man was in its fifth week. Um, Undercover Brother was released also this week at number four. And then Spirit, after that. And then the week number three, it dropped to number eight. So, yeah, it's theatrical run is, it's pretty weak.
1: For opening weekend is... You know, I, I would say that's pretty weak. The budget yeah. is not very big, $46 million. Right. But it at least went on. It was not a box office failure. It um, made some pretty good profits at the box office.
0: That's right, yeah. Budget of $46 million, opening weekend of twenty-point-nine, which isn't great. Um, but domestically, it ended up getting $67.3 million, which is not double, but it is uh, over their budget. Where in mm-hmm. the foreign markets they got 46.4 million with a worldwide total of 112.6 million. So all things considered, it did make its money back. It did pretty all right in the box office. And to be fair, given that this is a rated R flick coming out in this summer, it does it did do pretty alright f- given the con given the circumstances that it's in. If this was rated PG13 and it was more uh was more family oriented, this would be a complete bomb. But I wouldn't really consider this necessarily a complete bomb. Uh, Just It didn't do great, but it did all right. Again, all things considered.
1: And I think in some ways that's also what attracts at least producers to Nolan Yeah, is that he's able to take a small budget and no matter what get critical success from it and at least make a well enough profit to keep him working again, because right. his previous two films had almost nothing budgets and the profits were very significant in a way, this almost feels like they were testing Nolan maybe. And they're like, we're going to give you a, you know, a very anti uh, audience summer type movie. And uh, we're going to see what we are going to give you. We're you're going to work with veteran actors And we're going to see what you can do with this. And also you have less than a year to get it out. Right. And to finish it up. So to me, this, this almost feels like a test to prove, prove his worth because everybody's like, he's the next big thing. And they're like, let's have him in some ways kind of remake silence of the lambs with a lot less money and a lot less. uh, I don't know. Do you? You kind of feel that way too.
0: I could definitely maybe see a test coming from this movie where they're like, okay, well he made memento, which was like insane. What can he do with something like this? So yeah, it does in some ways feel like a test for Nolan to see what exactly he can do and what the audience audience would react to something that he would do. So yeah, it is an interesting, is Even in his lineup of movies, this is probably the one that I would consider to be kind of the one that's, uh, it's a, It's weird in its placement. It doesn't feel like it's much of anything else that he would go on to do or has done before.
1: Yeah, and that is reflected. This is his fourth lowest grossing film worldwide and domestically. Right, right. And it's interesting because he will go on to make another film in a couple years that will uh, have a lower grossing than than this one, actually. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. Oh, We'll talk about that one in a few weeks. Yes. Now, okay, let's say it is 2002, and you are, how you got to be like 17 to see a rated R movie? Yep. yep. Something like that? All right, you and I are 17, and we see this trailer on TV. Will the trailer get you into the theater?
0: Honestly, this trailer kind of paints it out to be just a generic <laughs> um, a very generic murder mystery. Uh, there's a death of some kind. usually, uh, the, I guess the cliche way going about it is there's a death of a girl and the killer is some maniac. That's kind of how it's painted out to be in the trailer. So I, I don't know. I don't think I would be very intrigued to go see it. I think it would look kind of, uh, cliche, I guess would be the best way to put it.
1: Yeah, I really thought this was an awful early 2000s trailer.
0: Yeah, it does have that it, early 2000s vibe to it as well with the narration and stuff.
1: Yeah, the narration, the editing, it's very generic. It's also very inaccurate. Yeah. Um, because they clip uh, dialogue from certain points of the film to make this out to be uh, the story is completely false. They paint in the trailer.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, And it kind of gives away the whole movie in a way. Uh, A lot of the plot beats are exposed in scenes in the film. So I wouldn't go see this movie based on the trailer. I wouldn't be there. Yep. Same. All right. Are we ready to give them the plot? I think so. All right, listeners, if you haven't seen Christopher Nolan's Insomnia and you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and watch the film and come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it.
0: Detective Will Dormer, played by Al Pacino, and partner Hap Eckhart, played by Martin Donovan, are sent to Nightmute, Alaska to investigate the murder of a 17-year-old girl. Upon arrival, they are greeted by a new detective in the town named Ellie Burr, played by Hillary Swank, who was a big fan of Dormer's work. Unfortunately, partner Eckhart reveals to Dormer that an investigation has been launched on a past crime of his, and knowing the secret... Uh, Eckhart is going to come forward with the evidence against Dormer for his own immunity,, uh, meaning that those that those who Dormer locked up would go free. After luring the murderer to the crime scene, Dormer Eckhart and the Nightmute police force chase the suspect into the into a, the dense fog. Dormer fires, thinking he has caught the murderer, but turns out he's accidentally shot his partner. Being a town where the sun never sets the time of the year, uh, an investigations with the murder of Kay, and the shooting of Eckhart, his partner, Dormer is plagued with insomnia. Dormer receives a phone call from the killer claiming that he saw Dormer kill his partner. The two meet on a ferry where the killer, named Walter Finch, played by, surprise, surprise, Robin Williams, <laughs> reveals that they need each other. Finch never meant to kill Kay, and Dormer, never meant, and Dormer never meant to kill Eckhart. They decide to plant the evidence against Kay's boyfriend, Randy, to save them both. Ellie, however, is hot on Dormer's trail, though neither of them realize it. She finds a 9mm casing at the crime scene. Remembering Dormer always carries a 9mm sidearm, she starts putting the pieces together. A tired Dormer reveals to to the hotel clerk what happened with the investigation that an Internal Affairs is looking into. There wasn't much evidence to lock away the murder that he was investigating, so Dormer ended up planting some in order to make the decision more concrete. Ellie heads back to the Finch's lakeside cabin, only to be overpowered by the man. Dormer shows up just in time to save Ellie. Dormer and Finch end up shooting each other. Finch falls into the water. While the sleep-deprived and now dying, Dormer lays down on the dock. Ellie tells him that she's going to throw away the 9mm casing she found, but he tells her not to, as it is the truth, and not to let go of that. And that's it. Uh, after that, the credits roll.
1: Okay, let's... Here's one of my positives. I think... Robin Williams is decent in this role, not one of his best performances, but for a comedian, his, he was a comedian, his whole career around this time. He, if you look at his filmography, he was taking um, more serious roles. Um, He played a a Holocaust person uh, played in Bicentennial man. Love that movie. Very creepy in one hour photo. And also in the final cut, which I really wanted to watch, but it just left Hulu streaming free on voodoo. I'll check that one out. So he was being more serious. And I think he does a great job at expressing his versatility as not just a comedian, but also kind of this kind of really cold calculating person.
0: Right. Yeah. It was very strange. Even when I saw it for the first time, not knowing that he was in this movie, seeing Robin Williams um, play a very serious role, playing a murderer, Whereas, yeah, like you said, he's mostly known for playing comedies up until this point. So, yeah, I was surprised when I first watched it to see Robin Williams in this role, but was also, again, surprised by, I guess, how fitting he is for the role that he's given. Because as much as he's trying to give off, you know, that he is this... I guess, murderer in a way, um, but also somebody that kind of feels like they have some kind of psychological disorder. I think that because of his reputation, it helps feed how, I guess, uh, impactful his role is in the story because being a comedian and then being seeing him this serious all the, uh, for, the, for the runtime of the movie, it gives off weird vibes. So I ended up enjoying his performance, I think partly because of his reputation and partly because of the uh, performance that he gives.
1: And he, he made this movie very enjoyable for me. At least probably the second half of the film yeah. is his He's very cold on the phone. But he always has this bit of a, almost a little bit of a laugh. He says almost as if reality is just, everything is just like too much to believe. So instead of giving into it, he's just going to like give a little chuckle almost. Right. Just that little hint in his voice does make him unsettling and kind of set you off uh, with his character. Um, The other thing that I do like is I would say he's given pretty good dialogue Mm -hmm. and uh, for a murderer, he is seemingly the only one that can speak truth in certain scenarios because our seemingly protagonist is ever going down the slippery slope into lies and cover up and uh he's it's amazing because the murderer character is manipulating our protagonist without the protagonist seemingly realizing it um one of the lines i really liked is when he said to um dormer's character he says it doesn't become the truth when you decide to tell it Mm -hmm. the truth is beyond that and that's definitely a point of no films that we've seen so far is, and this film absolutely plays with the idea of subjective reality because it's constantly saying, what did you see right. and what actually happened? And we know the objective reality of it all, but um, the characters are constantly trying to manipulate reality in order to save themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's. I think that's probably... My, I guess, my biggest positive is when is it's, I guess, view on what exactly is truth. Because we do know that while, and this happened in the past case for our main character for Dormer, that there just wasn't enough evidence to lock away a a murderer, right? So he ended up going in and planting evidence. So he's twisted the truth in a lot, in some way, even though he may, even though the Uh, The murderer may have even deserved uh, to go to jail in his eyes. Um, There just wasn't enough evidence to lock him away, to make that decision concrete. And so I like that idea that our main character, whose reputation is on the line, and who is trying to do the right thing, um, you get to see how he kind of wraps himself up into this lie that he tries, a lie that he tries to make the truth, that they're going to blame the boyfriend. Um, even though he killed his partner, they're going to say that it was the murderer who did it, and they're going to blame the murderer as the boyfriend, right? That's the whole plan. And so I like when at the end, you kind of get to see him change, and he goes, no, the truth is the truth. And I, there's... It's gonna look worse in the end if I don't give it away. And there is a there is a line in here where they say, do the ends justify the means? And he kind of comes. I like to mm-hmm. see that idea of him coming to terms with that that quote and realizing that the realizing the error of his way is there in the end. I ended up enjoying the, I guess, the truthful aspect of this movie and its viewpoint on that.
1: I did highly enjoy that scene where he reveals to the hotel receptionist About what he's done, which does clarify the whole IA investigation and why he potentially killed Hap. Because I will say I found that very confusing when Hap brings it up at dinner. Clearly, they know information that's being withheld from us. And I feel kind of lost during that whole IA thing. And I'm thinking, how is this? What is going on? Um, But regardless, when he does reveal that he planted evidence and we get to see, because in the beginning of the movie, we see somebody with gloves on kind of rubbing blood into something. And we have no idea what that is. I, I'm, I'm assuming it is the murderer. We're seeing flashes of what the murderer has done. Right. Even though they're kind of overlaid with the uh, waking dreams of our protagonist here. And I'm thinking, how could the protagonist know that stuff? He's not really haunted by this murder. He's haunted by what he's done. And once we do get that reveal, I thought that I felt that paid off. I felt like it kind of was it coming a little too late because I was just kind of lost on the whole thing up until then. But I did like the
0: reveal. Right. Yeah, they, they do kind of give it a they do kind of give you enough information. You know that there is going to be the police chief is launching an investigation to a previous uh, investigation he was in but all the details aren't there quite yet and I do kind of enjoy that we get all the de- all those details from his realization of what exactly is the right thing to do in the situation so but yeah I do agree with you the the I guess the reveal or I guess how they tell the background info of where Dorm of Dormer's past investigation where he planted that evidence is not told i guess in the best way possible it does kind of feel like uh the information that they withhold probably could have given been given to us sooner or a bit more clearer it, they don't really spell it out i would say enough in that scene when they're at dinner and uh Eckhart is telling him uh that he's going to go through with it and he's going to he's going to tell the police chief what happened Um, So, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I wish that they would have told us more on that, given us more information.
1: And I would agree because coming off of the original film, that motivation or character backstory is nowhere to be found in the original movie. So then this frustrated me that I just thought that maybe they're grasping at straws to create more of a conflict than was necessarily needed within the situation Um, I think in hindsight, I like it. It's just one of those things where you'd have to go back and rewatch the movie, knowing full well the gravity of this character's actions for it to have any sort of an impact on him shooting half.
0: Right. And I would say that that's really, I would say that the plot of our main character, you know, learning the fact, learning the error of his ways where he needs to tell the truth, not try and cover up or not trying to plant evidence, even if he is right. I found that to be like the main part of the movie. And I found the murder of the 17 year old to be more of just the lead in to that part of the movie. So I ended up enjoying, I think that again, this aspect of the truth should always will be revealed In the right way to be the most interesting part of this interesting piece of this movie, because uh, I again I don't I didn't think that the seventeen year old murder was necessarily the main focus of the movie. Rather, it was Dormer's uh, Dormer needing to realize you know the truth and how to tell it, and what the truth should actually be.
1: And that's what I missed the very first time that I watched this movie. I I missed the fact that. Because I'm thinking this is just a straightforward murder mystery and we're trying to figure out who the murderer is and what his motivations are. And the way the murderer is revealed and his motivations come about, it's really just told to us and it's very nonchalant. It's not a big twist, which left me feeling very disappointed in my first watch. But I would say what really helped me realize this was when I did watch the Norwegian version and I thought, oh, this isn't really about... The murderer and the death of this girl at all. This is about how our protagonist becomes the villain ultimately. And, um, it's just so happens that he accidentally shoots his partner while investigating it. And that becomes the main crux of the story is this character study of how this seemingly great guy. Um, will go to great lengths to save himself and how ultimately destroys himself. That's the core of the story. And that story, at least in the Norwegian version, is fantastic.
0: Yeah. And I like how they tell it here too, um, because we get to a point about, I would say about halfway through the movie, where Dormer has gotten so wrapped up into Saving his reputation, that literally the murder of Kay has taken a back seat to the story.
1: I will say I feel somewhat cheated though that I think the K story takes too much of a back seat in the end because, like I said, the when he uh, when Robin Williams' character is talking about how she was laughing at him and then he started hitting her and then ultimately he murdered her that way um and then that's kind of the end that's kind of the resolution to it right i didn't feel like there was a there was a sufficient enough arc to that as well because in some ways it does kind of feel like a bait and switch how they bait us in with that plot and then that feels it feels like they're still trying to figure it out except the detective figures out who it is and then he ends up working with this guy um and then they ultimately just ends up shooting him and that's pretty much it. Um, I really don't want to give anything away in the Norwegian version because I know you definitely want to see it Alan and other people do, but the way that that all comes together like full circle and that conclusion, it's very haunting and it really does feel satisfying in a way. I kind of felt like this movie was missing out on.
0: That didn't bother me, I guess, nearly as much as it bothered you because I was on board for the story that I think no one was trying to tell, and that is the detective, Detective Dormer, um, trying to scramble and save himself more or that, save himself and his reputation, instead of, you know, figuring out the truth to this murdered 17-year-old girl and revealing that to the police. Instead, he's trying to cover it up and save himself for murdering his partner and using that as a crux to do so.
1: Yeah, I will say it's just better utilized in the original version because he fig- the detective figures out a way to use Kay's murder essentially to his own advantage yeah, and how to save himself. And I think the gravity, like the depths that this great detective has fallen is highlighted so much more. And I feel like we're missing some of that as well. Okay, I got to know right off the bat, because I think a lot of this movie rests upon Al Pacino's performance. What did you think of his performance?
0: I thought he did very well. Um, I think where he mostly shines for me is how he displays tiredness, because especially when you get into the later half of the movie, and you get to see how much, you know, insomnia, also the title, is starting to wear off on him, and how that's also affecting the situation, and how he and I think this is even a line in the movie, the truth never sleeps. Um, And so I found that to be that performance of him showing tiredness. I found that to be the most uh, intriguing part of his performance overall. I think he did pretty good, but that was probably the standout portion of it.
1: I wasn't in love with Al Pacino's performance. Oh really? I really wasn't. I thought he did fine for some sections of it. I guess sometimes his just kind of fly off the handle attitude. I understand that's who he's supposed to be, but it just, I didn't really feel it. And one of the things that I was disappointed with is I felt he had an inconsistent crisis of conscience and I didn't feel that was authentic um, because at times he was completely fine with Uh, trashing on these teens and then when he realizes that um the killer is forcing him into framing the boyfriend uh, then he's really disturbed by that which gosh i really don't want to give anything away for the norwegian version um because and it's just so hard be hard not to compare them because like I said, it basically recreates the entire plot of the film, but drastically changes character motivations. And I'm just not seeing it played out as well here in the American version, but regardless with the version that we get here, um, it just doesn't feel consistent because he's willing to do some very bad things. But then at the same time, he's worried about other people as well. I wish that we would have just just watched him just go completely downhill and stuck with that.
0: Mm-hmm. I would say, I think the reason why I'm not so bothered with him going way like straight downhill is because it's playing all within his mind. It's all the truth. It's all everything that he's doing. He's painting what what he would present as the truth, right? So it's all within his own mind and all within his own hands. And so I didn't think that that necessarily was an issue for me. Although I will agree with you on this part, I don't think the film is necessarily all that deep with the subject matter that it goes into. I think it's rather surface level, which is a negative for me. But it sounds like the Norwegian version does do a better job at exploring some of these avenues more so than the American version of Insomnia does, which makes me even more excited to go watch it. But yeah, I will agree with you on that part. I don't think that this film utilizes everything that it lays out to its full advantage. I think it does so in a very good way with what it does, but I think that, yeah, it could have been taken probably a little bit farther than it actually did.
1: And that's something that troubles me with this American version is, I'm thinking that there are points uh, within the screenplay where characters just spill their motives all over. And it leaves very little room for ambiguity or for us understanding why a character does a certain thing. I feel like way too much is told within these screenplay characters talk about it openly too much. And I'm, I'm worried also because this is basically a first time screenwriter, but at the same time, I'm thinking this can be kind of a trouble with American films is it seems to be dumbed down aside from their foreign counterparts is that the audience just won't get it. So we really have to overexpound upon the screenplay. We have to create extra motives for characters to do certain actions because otherwise we wouldn't really understand why they would do such a thing. So that's probably something that I really was troubled with is um, they just like you just mentioned, Alan, there's a lot of rich material and character um, it's like psyches to mine and go through here. And instead, it's more run of the mill. It's a little bit more paint by numbers. And, um, they're worried. I think the screenwriter is just too worried the audience won't get it. So there's just too much told to us in this film.
0: Yeah, uh, I do agree with you on some of those points. And, I will say this is the most American Christopher Nolan film that we've had so far. The last two I felt were kind of against the grain, uh, especially in Memento, which was told backwards. Um, so yeah, this is very much more with the grain of, I guess, typical American movies. And in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, this reminds me a little bit too much of Silence of the Lambs, which, I mean, is a huge movie. We've re- We've reviewed it in the past. It's probably the murder mystery to end all murder mysteries in cinema, for right? At least right now. So, yeah. I mean, I think this is the most American movie that Christopher Nolan has done, and I will agree with you. Not too big of a fan of that because it it does kind of spill out too much. It doesn't really leave a whole lot to the audience interpretation. But I think that I I think my reason why I am enjoying it as much as I as I did compared to you is because I think the idea is what intrigues me so much. The idea that this cop goes in ready to solve this mystery of a 17 year old girl and instead switches and becomes selfish and is more worried about saving his reputation than he is figuring out the mystery um, that he was planning to do the whole time. I think that idea is what intrigues me so much. Um, And I think they do a pretty good job at representing that here but it sounds like again the foreign norwegian film does a better job at that and yeah again they have a lot of material here so they have good ideas but the way they go about it isn't necessarily the deepest thing that no one has done
1: and this is just really surprising coming off of memento where that entire film was a puzzle and no one wrote the film okay yeah. no one didn't write this film I have to think if they would have given Nolan time to write this film, we would have gotten something much richer and much less uh, explanatory to the audience. It would have been a much deeper character study because that's what we got with Guy Pierce's character in Memento. And that film was a treat to watch because I was they did not tell anything to us pretty much in that movie. That was us trying to constantly figure it out. And in some ways, that was a murder mystery as well. And like you said, this is just in some ways kind of put the puzzle piece together, paint by numbers in certain ways. And it's just a weird shift from Nolan coming from Memento. So in that way, my expectations were up and then they did come down because I was expecting something a little more from him because Nolan has been very creative so far. I'm struggling to see really what Nolan brings to the table in this film.
0: Yeah, this in a lot of ways feels kind of like uh Nolan, but he's under studio supervision. Um he is a very new director at this point. This is only his third movie. So, it kind of feels like there was a lot of studio interference here uh to make it, you know, more American, more I guess easier for the audience to understand those kinds of things because in the past Memento, unless you are like seriously engaged with it, it can be it can get very confusing very fast because of how it tells its story. And following has kind of a similar kind of a similar thing in it as well. So this one of the three is definitely the easiest one to understand because you are kind of right; they do kind of spell out a little bit too much. Um, but in what I'm seeing, it, it just kind of feels more like the studio. Uh, controlling more of the picture than I guess what they've done in the past, given that no one again is kind of a newer director here.
1: And, you know, I could also understand I would be pretty nerve wracking if I'm in my early thirties and I've done two modest sleeper hits and now they're like, we want you to work with Academy Award winner Al Pacino and Robin Williams. Oh, George Clooney's funding it, by the way. And you have a budget that's 10 times whatever you've ever had. Right, And that's that's scary. And, you know, he's bringing on his people. He's bringing on his DP and his composer, and he's also working with a brand new writer. It's just uh, it's weird. I would say this film didn't need to be remade
0: in the first place. Yeah.
1: And I know both of us feel that way about remakes in general is they're just usually largely unnecessary. Um, And that's that's kind of what I'm seeing with this movie. Um. Okay, now I'm very curious to know what you think of Hillary Swank's character because she's pretty much a new character in the original film. He does work with another female detective, but she doesn't play as large of a role and she's a little more cunning and not this goody two shoes kiss up.
0: Yeah, she definitely feels like the Jodie Foster of the movie. <laughs> I mm-hmm. I, just, I just can't look past her looking or feeling a lot like Jodie Foster's character from Silence of the Lambs, but that, that aside, I think her role is very important because she's very innocent compared to Dormer, who is kind of the complete opposite of her, and so she's the one who finds out the truth, like right? the actual truth of, of what happened. Uh, but at the end, she's willing to give it away, right? And so I think that her, and then of course, Robert tells her not to. So I think Hillary Swank's character, I think she's very important. I think Hilary Swank does a pretty good job. Um, however, I never really found her character to be super engaging. I think, again, I think the role is very important for her, but I think that, th- I wish there was a little bit more to her character. When it came to, I guess, her motivations and her actual like character traits, that there's a whole lot there.
1: Yeah. And she is very much like Clary Starling, as in she is a new rookie on this case, interacting with veterans. Yeah, I will. I will say. And will you agree with me, though, that Jodie Foster's character is better written?
0: Yeah, and I think part of that, too, is because she's the main character. Hilary Swank's character right. is very much a side character, so,
1: yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm just disappointed, though, that Hillary Swank has almost no backstory here. Yeah. Aside from she studied his case in the Academy, and because she studied his case, she was able to figure out that he uses a secondary gun, which we watch him pull out and use you kind of have to do a little bit of like mental gymnastics to figure some of that out. And at the same time, it's a little bit too serendipitous that she was the one that figured that did his case file and she remembered it. So she goes back and reads it right. and she figures out the bullets, which that gets, that got confusing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think they made that a little too confusing with, there was like three different guns possibly and I, Different bullets. I don't. Know. Yeah, I think anyway.
0: I think probably the most interesting part with her character is the parallel relationship with her and Dormer, and then Finch and Kay, because Finch Finch kills Kay, right? Um, uh, yeah, in the right. in the beginning, or be- to start this whole thing, because she fell in love with him to kind of uh, to get away from her boyfriend Randy at the time, and so she found more solace in in Finch and then Finch ended up killing her because she was laughing at him. Uh, same can be said about uh, Dormer and and Ellie, because Ellie is very innocent. She's brand new to the Force, and she looks up to, to Dormer. And Dormer, at the very end of the movie, she almost throws away evidence to save her idol, more or less. She's willing to throw away the truth that she has in her hands, even though she found it out herself. Um, to let him, I guess, be free of what would what would happen to his reputation, and so in a lot of ways that there's a parallel between those two relationships because, uh, l- just like how uh, Finch killed Kay, get these names down. <laughs> <laughs> just how Finch killed Kay and kind of tore away her innocence. The same could be said about Ellie and. And Dormer, how Dormer could have removed that truth and innocence from her character, but he chose not to and learned something from uh, from Finch. Got the names. Okay. Here you go.
1: I think that's a great parallel, Alan. And I think you should have written the script probably <laughs> because because I love the connections that you're drawing. I just wish they would have been better presented within the story that we see on screen. Right. Because I don't think we're given, unfortunately, we're not given enough time with um, Kay and Finch. I think that should have been explored a bit more. And then I think there should have been uh, visibly those parallels, such as uh, Finch would buy K expensive dresses or certain things. And you're right, there is a parallel there. But I would have liked to have seen... Um, Yeah, you're right. These names are just kind of, (laughs) (laughs) they're a bit to juggle here. I would have liked to have seen Dormer ask certain things of Ellie that would have challenged her conscience or her way of thinking of doing the right thing. And usually he just kind of brushes her off as an annoyance sometimes, but I do really like it when it does come down towards the end. And she says, you know what, I know your heart was in the right place, even if you kind of messed up a little bit. So I don't want your reputation ruined because of that. And he says, no, don't lose your way. Right. I do love that part. And uh, we. so in a way, this man does uh, give a good example to a young female, whereas uh, Finch tries to explain his uh, using and taking advantage of Kay. Uh, unfortunately, I love that idea. And um, in many ways, um, that that's actually completely absent from the Norwegian version. So I really love what you brought up. I just wish they would have done a better job of depicting it because I think they missed that opportunity as well to really hone in on that, unfortunately. Yeah,
0: I can, I can see that. I never really found it to be anything that I felt should have been more explored because this is one of the more subtler, subtler parts of the movie. Um, is the the relationship parallel between uh, our villain and hero. Um, So, yeah, I mean, considering everything else that is kind of spelled out in this movie, uh, this isn't nearly like that. It's kind of, it's a bit more subtle than everything else that's presented here. But I think that's probably why I enjoyed her character as much as I did, is because I found, I see how much importance she has for our main character, Dormer, here, and relating him, again, to... Finch, and Kay.
1: I mean, I found her character to be mostly unnecessary and somewhat obnoxious. Not as obnoxious as the detective with the mustache, though. Yeah. That guy was an unneeded extra character. I just wish that uh, Dormer would have been slowly degrading her kind of worldview or conscience throughout the film in a more significant way. So when she does decide to throw that bullet into the lake... That would have felt not, it's more shocking in this version, but I think it could have been more shocking actually if we would have seen how far he had taken her down with him and the legacy he was going to leave, um, the impact he was going to make um, just because of his bad choices. And you could see how corrupt he had come and how that corruption seeps down. It's presented here. I just not presented as well as I would have liked. <laughs> That's fair. Um, I did really actually like the score for this movie. I just wish it would have been um, incorporated a bit more into the film. Like it would have been pushed more towards the forefront, but given a character more into itself.
0: Yeah. I n- actually never really paid too much attention to the score here. I think part of that would have been because yeah, it doesn't really, it isn't really pushed forward into the limelight here. It's kind of in the background. So I never, yeah, I never really paid too much attention to it uh, when I was watching it this time.
1: So one of the things that I felt was awful about this movie, truly, that truly bothered me, was the editing. The editing the, there was nonstop quick cuts that made me dizzy. Oh, they, are you talking about the action
0: sh- scenes, or like the well, movie action in general?
1: scenes? Well, the movie in general, I I think. When there are more quick paced pace scenes, they're just cut far too quickly. I understand they're trying to create the editing to create a sense of kind of like adrenaline within you. But I'm just sitting there watching them have these conversations at just throughout the film or even police stations. And it's just cutting back and forth between the characters so much that I, I'm just so confused because um, the editing was so great last time yeah. and I don't know I don't know how you felt about this I did watch it on a 140 inch screen and it, it honestly made me dizzy
0: I can see why it would do that on 140 inches especially during those action scenes yeah those action scenes I feel that's why I feel you the most because like I mentioned in a memento while neither of these movies are necessarily action oriented in any sense of the word they do have action elements to them and at parts of the movie and I said for Memento that one of my negatives of it was, I did not like the way that the action was filmed or it was edited together in that movie. And I feel the exact same way here, especially in this climax. I feel this climax is very, it, this climax is not nearly as impactful as it could have been. And it's kind of hindered by its <coughs> editing, especially in these action scenes, because it's just not edited very well when it comes to those quick cut scenes, right? In terms of the overall editing, when it's flow, flowing from one event to the other, I felt it was... I, I didn't really have much of a problem with it. I think that the way that this we stitched together is very well done. Uh, I guess I'm not really seeing the issues that you're having with it, but I do feel the some of your issues when it comes to the action scenes in particular.
1: Well, also, the camera angles are, are too close up, I feel like. Every shot has to be kind of this tight angle where... It's just the character's face. And then there are very few medium or wide shots. And the only time we get like wide shots are like establishing shots of where these characters are going or their locations. I just felt the camera angles was too close up as well. Maybe it's because it's shot in 16 by 9 and I'm watching it on a hundred and forty-inch screen in my face. I'm just saying, I just don't think this movie is shot very well.
0: In some ways I can agree with you. Yeah, they do. Utilize a lot of close-ups and not so much uh, wide shots outside of, I guess, yeah, establishing. But yeah, I guess I never really had too much of an issue with the way that it was shot uh, either, on my end at least.
1: I did. It (laughs) bothered me so much. (laughs) I'd probably say one of the scenes, two of the scenes that probably stick out to me most in this movie that the one scene that's that I carried with me that I didn't forget afterwards is when um Robin Williams is talking on the phone and we get those quick intercuts. This is something Nolan does like to do yeah. and he will do it a lot is quick intercuts of uh, talking about Kay laughing. You see her laughing quickly and then you see him start to uh violently hit her and they leave a lot up to the imagination. And that is one scene that is one scene that is edited very well. Yeah. And that stuck with me. I'd probably say that's, a great scene in the movie.
0: Yeah, that's definitely one of the more standout ones because you kind of get an idea as to what happened in that situation. And they utilize those close-ups to... Kind of remove a lot of elements from the frame from your view. So when you know when he hits her, it's very quick. It's maybe like mm-hmm. a half a second cut when he hits her, and you hear the sound of her squealing, and then it cuts back to uh, their conversation, and you kind of get an idea as to what exactly happens. And you get in your mind is the thing that kind of makes that up uh, because of how much little information there is there. And so and I like the way that they do that too because. It, it's partly the way that it's edited, and partly the way that it's wrote. The uh, the villain is it's it's kind of hard to pin down what exactly this villain, who exactly, what exactly this villain's personality is, because in some ways it feels like he has like a personality disorder, but then in some ways he feels kind of normal. It's yeah, I think uh, again partly due to the editing. It's it makes his character be uneasy to see on screen, and I think that that's definitely by design. So yeah, these quick cuts, especially the scene that you're talking about, I think do a very good job at kind of conf- still con- still confusing the audience as to what kind of personality the killer has.
1: And one other thing that I will say, I was very I thought they utilized very well is the setting and night mute alaska where it is essentially perpetually daytime and it's not a sunshiny happy daytime it is a very limbo-esque um this very dreary daytime where you don't know when um scenes are taking place and that really struck me when i first watched the movie where he said um she's like he's like i want to talk i want to go to the school and talk to him right now and she said it's 10 o'clock at night and then him and the killer will be on the phone and it'll be three in the morning and it's still daytime or it'll be past midnight and they'll be driving around that is i think that's actually very unique um we have films like dark city where it's perpetually nighttime but rarely does a film make it perpetually daytime and so um I would say by the time you get through this movie, you're probably feeling almost exhausted as our main character here, how he can't catch a break, he's being bombarded from all sides, and even the landscape is a menace unto itself towards him.
0: Yeah, I think that's the reason why I think I found uh, Al Pacino's performance as, I guess, impactful as it was is because both times that I've seen this movie, I always come out of it feeling tired, in a way, because Mm -hmm. he he does give off exhaustion very well, and given the setting, it's very confusing because there are no night scenes anywhere in this movie. So yeah, you're right. It is kind of unique in that aspect where every scene is filmed during the day, and even though it may be 10 o'clock at night, uh, or midnight, or 3 in the morning, the sun is still shining as if it were 3 in the afternoon. So uh, yeah, I think that that's one of the more uh, interesting aspects of this movie is it's since Of time and it's kind of I guess this is kind of Nolan putting some of that time skewing elements to his movies where we don't really know what time of the day it actually is even though this movie really is pretty linear um, that's one thing I think he does very well is he he confuses the audience by what time of the day these events are taking place they don't spell that out at all
1: yeah I would absolutely agree with that and um, I think he did a great job in Memento of confusing us. Um, just m- more of a um, kind of like spatial awareness, like location, you were very confused on. This is definitely confusing us on time yeah. because it seems to perpetually never end. And you'll notice like our main character, like his wardrobe. Doesn't change very much. And most of the characters' wardrobes are very slight changes, which I think was a very smart idea to create that sense that it's almost like this prolonged nightmare up at the top of the world, essentially. And it's a very barren town, and uh, crime isn't very common up there. And uh, everything is just kind of uh, shook up in this very drastic way. So that plot, that part of it, I really love, actually. I got to say this real quick. I would be remiss if I didn't say that there is so much taken from Twin Peaks the TV show. Um, within this You know movie.
0: I haven't seen Twin Peaks. I've only seen uh, production stills, but I can see that. As from my Ooh, limited oh, knowledge of Twin Peaks.
1: It's just funny because we both I believe it was when we watched Following we said this feels like David Lynch's Blue Velvet yeah, um, in certain did. ways. And now I'm watching this, and I'm sure Nolan is a fan of David Lynch, who isn't, who wouldn't, who wouldn't look up to David Lynch right, as a director exactly. and, and storyteller. And I'm like, wait a minute, because there is so, so many similar elements. Because Laura Palmer is the high school girl, and you find out that um, her boyfriend was cheating. Um, this is not a spoiler. You figure this out in the first episode. Her boyfriend was cheating on her with her best friend, just like in this movie, and they call in a special detective from out of town to um, investigate the case. This is very, very... If you've seen um, Twin Peaks, which was on TV about 10 years prior to this, then you would uh, have some familiarity uh, with that. I love Twin Peaks, by the way. I've watched it twice. I need
0: to watch it. I've been to watch it for years since now it's on Netflix. Gotta get around to it still.
1: (laughs) Well, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for
0: Insomnia? When I first watched Insomnia back in college, I mentioned this earlier, I wasn't too big of a fan of it. I think part of that was because I'd always heard this is the weakest Nolan film. It's very different from what he usually does. uh, Those kinds of things. And so I went in with that mindset and came out with that same mindset. So this time around, I went in with an open mind like I usually try to do. And I was pleasantly surprised at a lot of elements, but at the same time still feeling like there are things here that don't really feel very Nolan to me. So in an overall sense, I like the idea that they have here, where this cop, this detective goes to investigate a murder, but ends up trying to just save himself and his reputation instead. And it's the murder that isn't really the most important part of the movie. It's this reputation that he feels is the most important part. And I like that idea. And in some ways, they do very well, a very good job at presenting that in some ways it feels kind of generic, kind of run-of-the-mill uh, your your run-of-the-mill murder mystery story. And there's a reason why I keep bringing up Silence of the Lambs because I feel a lot of Silence of the Lambs in this movie. So I like some elements. I don't like some elements. Um it's it's kind of a 50-50 for me. When it really comes down to it, um, I think I like it more than I dislike it. So I think for me. It's probably going to end up being a 6 out of 10 with a pretty mild recommend for me. I think it's good. And I was very engaged the whole time. I think my problem is, yeah, it is, as far as this retrospective is concerned, it is the weakest known film that we've reviewed so far and definitely the most cliche.
1: Insomnia is a cheap American recreation of a phenomenal Norwegian film. No one directs, but he doesn't write. Cinematographer Wally Feister is somewhat more creative this time than Memento, but in many ways is more so a step back. His work pales in comparison to Erling Thurman Anderson's starkly cold vision. And sadly, Erling did pass away six months after the remake was released. First time big screen writer Hilary Seitz exposes her amateur qualities by telling more often than showing. Which creates a disconnect with our relating to character motivations. David Julian's score is the best element of this production out of directing, writing, and cinematography. And unfortunately, it isn't, it is given little play within the film. This is a flat out weird production. We have power player george clooney and indie big fame film director steven soderbergh giving the new kids on the block nolan feister sites and julian a semi-small budget and then enlisting academy award talent such as al pacino robin williams and hillary swank to work with eric skolberg's original norwegian film is nearly a masterpiece having it be remade a few years later with mostly unproved talent behind the scenes and expecting them to make it work with longtime Hollywood legends is just an awful idea. No one brings very little that proves his ability as a director, aside from creating a competently constructed film. If I didn't know better, I would say he's phoning it in here. I implore you, listeners, to watch the original film and ignore this foolish American remake. There's a reason Criterion released the Norwegian version and not this, and that this is one of two of no one's films that's not in the IMDb Top 250. Insomnia receives four stars out of 10 with a strong not recommend.
0: Oh, wow. I I was not expecting a four.
1: You know what? I was thinking about a five when I finished the film, a mild not recommend. And I thought, you know what? No, I got to go with a four. It's a strong not recommend. I really didn't like this movie at all. And to me, it's just hard because... I have two versions of the film. I have the American version and the Norwegian version. And to me, as I've already said, the Norwegian version is a nine out of ten. It's so much stronger. And then when I see this film, while I do like certain things that they change, it's just so unnecessary. And there's so much of it that I just don't like. So I think that kind of tainted my viewpoint of this film.
0: Let me ask you this then. Do you think your rating would change if you had not seen the Norwegian film? What do you think your rating would be had you not gone in with that prior knowledge? Just seeing it as if it were its own standalone movie, hadn't been remade or anything.
1: Going into this movie and watching it without seeing the Norwegian one, I would probably I would probably land between a five and a six. I think I I think in some ways I might give it the very mildest of recommends, but I would probably still land on giving it a mild, not recommend because I don't think there's enough uniqueness here to really make this film worthwhile. Like we've talked about, there's enough good elements, but it's just, it's just so weak. And I'm really not trying to compare it to Nolan's past effort, which you gave a perfect 10 out of 10 to. And now we like, it fell so far um for me like no one was just going straight up and then this is just i would say this is his weird black sheep in his oeuvre of films yeah
0: yeah and this is also one that he didn't write so i wonder if that has a lot to do with it because yeah, i think so memento, he all wrote himself following he wrote himself with uh, i think memento yeah. he wrote with his brother as well and I know in the future, he pretty much exclusively writes either with him and his brother or him alone. Right. And uh, only very few exceptions where he, will he actually branch out uh, and take a picture that is read by somebody else. So, yeah.
1: Well, Alan, are you going to pick this one up on Blu-ray, DVD, digital, or are you going to pass?
0: This is a movie where I've wondered – should I buy that on Blu-ray? Should I not? Because it's you can get it for pretty cheap. I, I think you can pick it up for like five bucks at Best Buy or something like that.
1: Oh, really? Because Amazon is yeah. like $14 right now. Really? Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's stupid. I know. I remember seeing it for very cheap at Best Buy at one point. Right. Yeah. Um, but regardless, yeah, I'll probably pick it up. I Like I said, I like it more than I don't. And I think I find enough enjoyment in it for me to pick it up i wouldn't pay more than 10 bucks for it i'd probably pay five yeah uh but yeah i'll probably end picking it up i'm glad to watch the original region for a film as as well and we'll see if that one's a pickup or pass see if that one's a pickup or i pass on but we'll see
1: yeah i will pick this film up it's got to be a cheap price though and the only reason i'll pick this up is to complete the nolan collection so i have all of nolan's films Fair enough. I'll definitely buy the Criterion, though. Of the oh, yeah. Film. That's not a that's not a question. But I gotta say, so so far, uh, my average my average rating for the known films, um, because this one I gave a four, it dropped all the way to a six for the first three films yikes <laughs> it's it's a definite yikes and it is interesting to note no one's moving out of r rated territory and he is moving into the, the most icon arguably the most iconic superhero ever and that is Batman. He is given oh yeah the role of directing for his for his fourth film he is I don't even know if he's 35 yet at this point and he gets to take over the range to Warner Brothers juggernaut mm-hmm. property. Batman and uh it should be no surprise that those films are loved
0: yes uh those are considered by many to be probably the most important and some would even say the best superhero franchise superhero trilogy to have ever been produced and we'll see why when we'll see why next week because Back in 2005, superhero films were very different than they would be when Iron Man came out Mm. and started the entire MCU.
1: I hadn't seen Batman Begins in a long time and I was just watching it with my fiance and it was really nice to just rediscover that
0: film. Yeah, I'm excited, too. I think the last time I watched it would have been the time that I went through and watched the entire Batman, that Dark Knight trilogy in one day. Oh, wow. It takes about seven, it takes about seven hours. <laughs> Actually, it's about seven hours around the dot. Uh, but I did it. I think that was the last time that I watched it. I think.
1: So I'm very excited. Next week, we're going to be back reviewing Batman Begins. Listeners, here's the question after the show. What? I have so many questions to ask about insomnia. I am so curious to know what our listeners think of this movie. Okay, so here's the question after the show. If you have seen the 1997 version, which version do you like better? I'm curious to see. Maybe some people actually like this American version better. Okay, and if you haven't seen the 97 version, then... I want to know your thoughts on Al Pacino and Robin Williams' performance. Two very different actors. How well do you think they play off each other? Because it—it's so they're so different, but it works. So, Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will be back next week with Batman Begins. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, google or stitcher or your favorite podcast service and while you're at it please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast we love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you so don't forget to share with your friends and family and we'll see you next week listeners